You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hello. One of the ways to introduce the ideas of libertarianism to more people is to get speaking engagements at service clubs. Rotary, Optimist, Lions, Kiwanis, Exchange Club, Sir Optimist, Civitan, and others. On this tape, you're going to hear two such speeches. On this side is the real story of the Great Depression, and then on the other side is the left-right spectrum is a myth. In both cases, the objective is to uh, help people to understand more about libertarianism and to uh, feel good about the libertarian that they, that they meet during that presentation. So hear a fair amount of humor and as well as a, a good solid message. Here we go. 1985, this will be Marshall Fritz uh, presenting a, a brand new, this first time presentation, uh, The Real Story of the Great Depression. Uh, this presentation is a condensation of one that is given by Hans Senholtz, professor, head of the economics department at Grove City College, Pennsylvania. And it's going to, it's given to a luncheon group, the Fresno Optimist Club. It's a group of about 20, uh, 20 to 25 people. And uh, interestingly enough, it's a place where I go to test out uh, my speeches. They've heard uh, four or five speeches from me, and most of those have been the first time I've given a speech. I don't think we're going to have any more fun. I don't think so. I don't think so. Gentlemen and Henry. It's my great pleasure today to be able to introduce once again our popular speaker, Mr. Marshall Fritz. Marshall has been here several times before and has discussed various topics that have been of interest to him at the time. And I can say that uh, certainly some of those topics became of great interest to some of us also. Today, we're very fortuitous in uh, being able to, um, to continue where last week's speaker left off, because as you recall, uh, they took us through the scoundrel right up to Herbert Hoover and left us at the Depression. So today, what uh, Marshall's going to talk about is the real story of the Great Depression. And we're still over here. So appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. George, hello. Good afternoon, members of the Optimist Club. It's good to see you, and it's good to be here. Musing as I was driving in how many speeches you have had the blessing or the curse of hearing for the very first time. But but uh, Paul, I've been able to call him up every once in a while and say, Paul, i got this new idea for a new kind of a presentation. If you got an opening, could they stand me one more time? And he says, well, one more. And then this morning, Paul called me at, uh, and asked, uh, you know, would I be able to speak again and when would be convenient? So <laughs> and I fell right into it. I said, your earliest possible time would be great. And he says, okay, I'll see you in an hour. So I, I've been working on a new presentation for several weeks now since I had the opportunity to hear a Professor Hans Senholtz 
speak quite extensively on the Great Depression, and it, it intrigued me so much that I'd like to figure out how to uh, condense Professor Senholt's words down and to be able to share them with you this morning, this afternoon, and that's what I hope to, to accomplish. By the way, the Optimist is going to get a plug on the radio a week from today or tomorrow, anyway, on September the 11th, but I, I'm one of these people that's going to be speaking on KVPR. They're going to have a little three-minute segment every morning on the morning news with some local person saying something, and, uh, and they've asked me to do that twice a month. And this morning, in talking about the Mars program, uh, toward the end of my presentation, I said that the demise of Mars, if we can somehow accomplish pounding a wooden stake through that thing's heart, the demise of Mars will allow for Boy Scouts, and then I mentioned the optimists and the boys' clubs. Ken, you still reading? Mentioned the boys' club and how uh, and how the people like, such as the optimists can get back into an, an, an enhanced way the recycling business without believing that they're somehow uh, being unpatriotic because they're competing with their government. So, uh, yeah, prop yourself. <laughs> Is that a Kiwanis out there? A Kiwani or something? Uh, <laughs> What is he you know? Now I'll never be able to use this tape as a uh, right a mark. with that mark on it. Come on, that's right. You know, there's there's three myths that we hear a lot about the Great Depression. I grew up with these myths, and I suspect every one of us here has heard all three of these myths. At least I've come to believe that they are myths. We've heard them over and over as great truths, and I'm here to question some of these great truths. I'm here to call them myths this afternoon. Myth num number one, the cause of the Great Depression. Number two, its length. And number three, its end. What's the cause of the Great Depression? And what we hear so often, this, this wisdom, is that there is some fatal flaw in capitalism that causes depressions. That capitalism itself that has the seeds of its own destruction and the depression is there. A second myth is that the Great Depression uh, was prolonged because of Herbert Hoover's do-nothing attitude, that if Hoover had jumped to action sooner, that the Great Depression wouldn't have had to have been, but that he lollygagged and did nothing for three and a half years, and as a result, we were plunged into a depression unlike any other in the history of the nation, in the history of the world, perhaps. And the end of the Great Depression, our our classical or conventional wisdom now is that FDR saved capitalism from itself. He got the government uh, involved and saved capitalism. And that was, that's kind of the third myth. So number one, what is the cause of depressions? Uh, since depressions started in the late 18th century, the first one in America was in the early 19th century, 1819. People have been looking for what is the cause of depressions. And we had de depressions, or in those days they were called panics. There was the panic of 19, the panic of 37, the panic of 57, the panic of 73, the panic of 93, the panic of 1907, the panic of 1921. And in fact, the word depression was coined because they, the word panic is kind of uh, obnoxious. So the word depression was coined as a euphemism and the government didn't want to call it the Panic of 29, so they called it the Depression. Of course, that was so bad that now we, we use the word recession. We can't, say, we can't say the D word. It's too dangerous, right? So no matter how bad things ever would get, it certainly would not ever be another 
depression. So people look for the causes, and people have come up with such ideas. It's caused by sunspots. The Marxists, the communists, say that it's the perils of production, that the capitalist exploits the worker, and the worker doesn't have enough money. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and the, and the poor people do not have enough to buy their own production. So production capitalism outruns itself somehow. Some say it's technological change, that there's such things as the railroads or the automobiles, and when there's a great technolo technological change, that this causes depressions. I'd like to share with you a, a view that is held by the Austrian economists, by the members of the Austrian School of Economics. And it has to do, and it is this, that the cause of a depression is that governments falsify information to businessmen. Governments expand the money supply, causing easy credit. That easy credit depresses the interest rate. Interest rates, instead of being 3 or 4, fall down to 1 or 2 percent. When the interest rates are low, a businessman says, hey, now's the time to build a new plant. Now's the time to expand. Now's the time to get a loan and build, get, bring in some new machine tools. I need this, I've been wanting this new punch press. I've been wanting a new wing on the plant. And now with the interest rate at one and three quarter, now's the time to do it. So the businessman starts expanding, and we have the process that we call a boom. This is where the damage is actually done. Because what's happening is, there hasn't been any real savings. It's not like people stopped spending on consumption and saved money, and the savings were taken and used by the businessmen. You see, the people still have their what they've earned. The businessmen have the savings of what has been saved, because it's been given to them, lent to them. But then there's this new thing called all this extra money. What happens is, then, that prices are bid up. Instead of the businessmen, if there's savings, what happens is, is the consumers consume less, the businessmen have more, but the resultant balance is the same, and prices are relatively unchanged. But now what happens is, the consumer doesn't have less. The businessman, through the borrowing, has more. So there's more competition, there's more bidding in there for the various factors of production, land, labor, tools, that sort of thing and prices start to rise. As prices rise, the businessman's costs are going up. Those prices are all cost to him. And as his costs go up, he notices that his profits are going down. His profits go down, he says, hey, wait a minute, maybe now is not such a good time to be building on the plant and that sort of thing. So the actual cause of depression, and he starts to cut back. And we're into it. So what we have here is a false signals, falsification of information by government entities that causes the businessman to think that things are really booming and going great, that later that seeds, sows the seeds for later the adjustments as those businessmen who overextended themselves then go bankrupt and have to get out of business. And that is the explanation for depression that comes from the Austrian school of economics. And the history has shown this because in every case of each different depression, or the panic as they used to be, you can see the boom right ahead of it. You can see the boom, then the crash. The boom, then the adjustment period. But the Great Depression is something very special. The Great Depression was not just a panic that lasted six months, 16 months, 20 months. See, these panics 
You know, there were just a, the panic of 73 was a year or two. The panic of 93 was a year or two. The panic of 57 was six months or eight months. See, these things used to happen very quickly. It was, and you're rid of the darn thing. The Great Depression was different. We're talking 10, 11 or more years. So there's something vastly different about it, and it had a great effect. It changed the American soul. The Americans biologically were still the same. Ethnically, we were still the same. But it changed the American soul. It changed the way that we Americans think about economics. We think about it far differently than did our grandfathers and great-grandfathers. The Great Depression was really four depressions rolled into one, one up next to the other. And that's what makes it so difficult to, to analyze. It wasn't just one depression. It was bang, 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 four of them. The first depression was caused by the boom of 1924 to 29. Why did that boom happen? Were there sunspots? What, can you, can you track, trace any governmental action that caused that and triggered it? Yes, you can. 1924, the Federal Reserve Board, which was kind of young at the time, it was only 10 years old, was starting to feel its oats and decided that it should start its, what we would call from the Austrian School of Economics, tinkering or intervention in the money supply. Uh, what people who believe in the Federal Reserve Board would call it um, guiding the economy or fine-tuning the economy. So they started fine-tuning or they started meddling in 1924 and they started injecting funds into the money markets. The result was concentrated in real estate. Those are the years of the Florida real estate boom and in the stock market. Those are the years of the stock market boom. That malinvestments were being made. In 1926, they further injected more funds, not so much to spur the economy, but to help England. England was uh, having trouble supporting the pound, and they figured if they inflated the American dollar, rather than the English having to come down, we would inflate ourselves up. And we went along with the English to help them out. The French said no way, and didn't go along with the English and inflate their currency at that time. In 1929, the Federal Reserve Board decided to break the fever and it raised the interest rates up to 6% around the country and 7% in New York. And that triggered the Depression. By 1930, the readjustments were taking place. There were 4 million unemployed, and the Depression, or the Panic of 29, should have been over in 1930 or 31. We're starting to shake it off. But it got worse. And the question is why? Why, when all these panics had lasted a year or two at most, why all of a sudden did one of our panics not get better? I mean, these things, <laughs> you, you know that Mother Nature can cure the common cold in seven days, and it takes modern medicine a week. You know, why did we not get rid of this depression? What happened? Well, politicians had a new idea. For the very first time, politicians decided that they were going to help the economy. It was always considered, you know, that, well, that's a problem out there. But in all of these other panics that we've had, the government just sat back and said, you know, worst thing the government could do would be to try to do something. So we just won't do anything, because why do the worst thing? This thing will get better. It's like a, like a, a glass of, of a cloudy or, or, or a, um, muddy water. How do you clear up a glass of muddy water? Leave the thing alone for a while, and it'll get clear itself up. Not this time. Hoover 
had been infected with the notion of managing the economy, of running things from Washington. He enjoyed World War I and all of the boards that he was on, and he enjoyed the uh, 20s and being the Secretary of uh, Commerce and all of that sort of thing. And he enjoyed having government managing things. And he supported the Republican answer to almost any problem, which is close the borders, put on a tariff. And the Smoot-Hawley tariff went on, and what it meant, it shut down international trade. And the Republicans don't seem to have learned, and Democrats really don't learn it either, is that what happens is when you shut down imports, what happens about the same time? You shut down exports. What was our biggest uh, product? Wheat. That's right. And what happened to agricultural prices all of a sudden in 1931 and 32? Went down to they went down to nothing. Even the very the most competent farmers were having a hard time making a living. You couldn't get 25 cents, 25 cents for 100 pounds. There you go. I just it. That's right. That's right. And by the way, how, how easy was it to pay the mortgage all of a sudden now that you're getting 25 cents now that you got hog feed? Couldn't pay the mortgage. Would that affect the banks? 12,000 banks went under. See, Hoover's helping with the Smoot-Hawley tariff. But they're not looking very far ahead, and they're not seeing the results of what they're doing. 12,000 banks collapsed. How many businessmen have their money in those banks? Yeah, quite a few. How many of the businesses get hurt if their money is gone? So businesses are collapsing right and left. The headline that time was that the Russians flood the markets with wheat because the prices dropped. Yeah. That was the headline. I read it. I remember that. <laughs> There's uh, been umpteen headlines since then, and, and, and the Russians have not exported wheat. By the way, as bad as feudalism was, Russia was a grain exporting country until 1916. Russia had trouble finding markets for all of its wheat. Since 1917, of course, they've had bad weather. <laughs> there's a saying in Africa you know there's about 15 countries affected by the bad by the by the drought but only the Marxist countries have a very bad drought it is a got worse so unemployment was up to 25 percent Hoover kept spending he kept the government spending like mad and there was a, a huge deficit he doesn't like deficits, so he doubled the income tax. Doubled the income tax and raised other taxes at the same time. People was, just couldn't wait until November of 32 to vote out Hoover. And they did in droves. Who can tell me what the platform for the Democratic Party was? Who can tell us what the Democratic, what FDR's platform was? The highlight of that platform was cut spending 25% and balance the budget. That's what he ran on. When he got elected, he had a choice. He had a choice of freeing up the economy, of doing what he would say, said he was going to do, or doing the reverse of what he said he was going to do, and seeing if he could be the mastermind who could run the economy better than Hoover could. We all know what he chose. 1933, we had the National Industrial Recovery Act. What was the job of the national, the intent of that National NRA was to eliminate competition. Industry cartels were created. 
The whole Mussolini fascism thing was, was very appealing to many people. And what we needed to do was to have industry cartels where industries' councils would come up with codes, basically ways of keeping up costs. Thank God. Yes, it was. Yeah. That's right. We invented minimum wage laws for the first time. The intent was to boost costs. Now, business, already having prolonged losses, what happens if you come up with artificial ways of keeping their costs up? More losses. It's preventing the adjustment. After one year of FDR, the unemployment rate had gone to 26%. Not only hadn't gone down with all of his nostrums, but it continued to go up. 1934, an attempt to help agriculture, they put a tax on food processors and then used the money to destroy the crops. That's right. 1933, they seized all the gold and abrogated all contracts. Here, American businessmen who know that the government, who have been raised believing the government is there to defend contracts, to defend people from people who would, who would not keep their word, the government is abrogating all contracts. Odd. 1935, the Supreme Court said the NRA is unconstitutional, and the recovery begins. 1936, unemployment dropped from 13 million to 7.5 million. Finally, they've left the thing alone for a few months. And we're now at the end of the Third Depression, 1936. And then in 1937, there was another collapse. Why? More sunspots? No. There were three small factors and a big one. Small factor one, number one, undistributed profit tax. It's still with us. Gee whiz, <laughs> we're taking away everything that you're making in income tax, but if you have some old savings that you had you know, quite some time ago, we're going to come in and take those out of your business too. FDR threatened to the democratic principles of the United States by attempting to pack the court. This was a real unnerving thing to a lot of people who wants to invest and get things bigger when you're being so unnerved. Even his own party turned against him on that one. And Wall Street was made a scapegoat. That's all your fault, Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, we're going to have the SEC looking over your necks because you guys caused the Depression and have caused it to be so long. It's your fault. But the main cause was that labor was taken out of the courts. Labor was no longer required to go through the court system. We returned to a concept of over 200 years before, which we had gotten rid of. In 17th century England, what was the first question asked of the, of the accused? What is the accused class? Is he prince? Is he commoner? Is he serf? Because the law that you used was dependent upon whether the man was a prince or a commoner or a serf. That concept had gone away. We'd gotten rid of that concept. And that was no longer asked in a court of law in the United States until 1937. And then it was reinstituted with the Wagner Act, because now labor could no longer, when was no longer a part of the court system. All cases with labor were part of the national, of the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. So labor was given a special status, like a prince, like an aristocrat. There are those who would contend the system was so abysmally corrupt 
labor was consistently denied a fair hearing anywhere in the courts, anywhere in the country. You're not going to get me to ever defend the government as having done anything right. So, okay. okay. <laughs> so I'll certainly agree with you on that, sir. <laughs> It all harks back to the 15th century when the government captured the courts, because the courts used to be private. Used to be private courts. And they wouldn't enforce some of the stupider laws in the 15th century that they were coming up with in England, and they got nationalized. So, yeah, I'll... <laughs> but thanks, Gary, you're right. Yeah. What it is, is, is what I'm saying is, two stupidities do not make us smart. Okay. All right? And I think we probably agree on that, and then we can go back and study them and say, were there really two stupidities, or one and a half, or did they somehow squeeze three into a sack that was designed for two? That's right. But later on, it was interpreted to cover the commoner more. Right. But these right. two things, NRA and the Wagner Labor Act, was also extension of that to give more rights to those people. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. That's yeah, and if you give a person a right, it's yeah. not natural. If you say, "Hey, let's have uh, let's have Howard have a right to shoot anybody he wants to. We'll give him a gun. He can go out shooting people." That's not very smart. That's not wholesome for society. That he should be able to shoot people and, and, and not be punished for it. Well, Just in the right. Under Herbert Hoover, they gave him the right to have machine guns and they always play. They shot down the workers. I lived that time. Yeah. Earl, I'm not. Earl, I'm not trying to. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to tell you that the government was doing a good job of defending labor's rights. I think the government was doing a terrible job of defending labor's rights. But the correction was not to then take labor out of the court system, because that further unnerved business. There were thousands of strikes, sit-down strikes. Businesses collapsed. I'm going to finish on time. We'll see. <laughs> That's right. I'm on page four of a four-page presentation. We're right here. Right? We're, we're so close. We're okay. Unemployment went from 7 million to 11 million in eight months. The collapse was faster than anything we'd seen in 29, 30, 31, or 32. It was incredible as businesses collapsed right and left. 37, the ag doesn't start going down. They were dumping milk and all sorts of things all over there. 38, government jumped in to help. You know, I mean, it's about time a little help came to the rescue here, right? I mean, the free market's been doing all of this stuff, and now it's time for a little help with the Wages and Hours Act. Let's start giving people 46 hours pay for a 40-hour week. And government got in between the worker and the entrepreneur, the owner, the capitalist, and said, we're going to change the rules. And you've got to start cutting down on their hours in a staggered fashion, but keep the pay the same as it was for the 46-hour week. What does that do? That raises costs. What does that do? That depresses profits or causes losses, and more businesses start going under. By Pearl Harbor, we still had 9.5 million unemployed. Now the myth, the myth that there's some sort of flaw in capitalism and capitalism triggered the depression is a myth that one needs to be either ignorant of the facts or one needs to, to just want to be wrong somehow. It's incredible. 
the length of the depression, that it was somehow helped by the government. And that all, I mean, just look at the logic of it. All prior depressions were 10 to 20 months, and then the one where the government helps, the thing is 10 years or more. Yeah, but you see, that was, uh, the big depression was a worldwide depression. It wasn't a local scene. That's right. Some depressions were localized, maybe just on the continent, mm -hmm. on a certain area. But what a lot of people don't realize that the German economy went to hell. It'd take a truckload of March to buy a loaf of bread. That was seven years before. That was November of 23. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, but we couldn't. The depression started in 20. My dad said, look, people don't realize the depression really started around 22, 23, little by little. He said, you didn't realize it out here in the West Coast until later. Back east, he started in the 20s. The upshot of it is, in my opinion, he who blames the Great Depression on freedom, he who blames the Great Depression on freedom and free enterprise is ignorant of the facts or should have his head examined. Thank you. I notice we have a little bit of extra time left on this tape, and I hate to see uh, this blank tape was spinning by, so we're going to stick an extra in here. This is a seven-minute presentation given at a Toastmasters uh, called uh, They Found a Better Way. The contest for the international competition at that level with this speech, but I think he's really out to win a bigger audience because he's given us a special task and evaluation this morning, and I hope we can help him accomplish his goal. The title of his speech, They Found a Better Way. It tells me it's 7 minutes and 28 seconds, Mr. Tyler. <clears throat> we'll see how close that comes. It's the, it's number 7 in his manual. He said he's always forgetting to bring his manual, but I want him to be a CTM. And the number seven project, and I think this is a good speech for the number seven project, is where you put all the things you've learned in the first six projects together. And Marshall's not a really a beginning speaker. He's given a lot of presentations to many audiences. So I think it's even more important that we do what we can and give him some feedback this morning. So let's all listen carefully as he tells us they found a better way, Marshall Fritz. <laughs> Thank you, Gordy. Thank you very much, Gordy. Good morning, Mr. Toastmaster, fellow members, welcome guests. I bring good news. The American Revolution is not yet complete. The American legacy, the American heritage, the American dream is yet to be fulfilled. And there is ample evidence that it can be complete in the next 25 years. And the good news is that most of us in this room will live to enjoy the restoring of the American dream. We shall again see rising standards of living, and our children will enjoy a declining risk of war. Wait just a minute, you might say. How can a prediction of a revolution be good news? Well, John Adams, the second president of the United States, 
believed that the American Revolution took place between the years 1760 and 1775. This is before the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. Adams says that the real American Revolution took place in the minds of men and women.